Let me invite you now to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, friends, this morning. In our time together, we will look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, down to the end of chapter 2 at verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, down to the end of verse 15. Friends, I have entitled this morning's sermon, Worship is Witness. Worship is Witness. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Beloved, let us read together. The word of the living God says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Beloved, this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Shall we pray together? Our Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for your mercy. Lord, your Word is a treasure to us. It is the greatest treasure that this life affords. Father, we know that we can understand nothing apart from your grace, apart from your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit now to come and enlighten our minds, help us to rightly handle and divide the word of truth here, help us to see the glory of Christ and the corporate worship and witness of your people. Father, we pray that you would cause us to come most humbly to this word, Lord, that we may see your glory, that we might relish the truth, that we might love and honor Christ. Father, we pray, have mercy on your church now for Jesus' sake. We ask, amen. Well, friends, uh, this is a difficult text. Uh, not, uh, there are many texts in scriptures that are difficult, either because exegetically there are issues to sort through. Think, for example, uh, interpreting the book of Revelation, looking at apocalyptic literature and the like. Uh, there are other texts that are hard or difficult texts because sometimes the truth that is proclaimed, the doctrines that are unpacked, are uh, unpopular or hard for us to stomach. And, and that is many times the, 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 uh, this text itself is one that is difficult for many of us to appreciate, to accept, uh, and to relish. And so friends, as we come to this word, let's ask the Lord to help us to see how good he is and how this instruction is for our blessing and benefit. Friends, you'll remember that in uh, 1 Timothy, we have Paul the Apostle writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. And Timothy is a pastor. Timothy is an overseer. Timothy is an elder. Remember those three terms, overseer, elder, and pastor, refer to the same office, that same office of the pastor of the elder. And it is Timothy's charge to preach the word. He is the principal preacher and teacher for the church at Ephesus. 
Paul has spent some time encouraging Timothy to fight off false doctrine, to combat false teachers within the church, to hold fast to the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. And in chapter 2, Paul has been unpacking some of his practical instruction for orderly worship within the church. And remember, last time we were together, we looked at the priority of prayer, how prayer is a fundamental, indispensable ministry of God's people that we as the church are called to pray. And this prayer is for all kinds of people, even for those in authority over us, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, which is holy and acceptable to God. We are to pray for the conversion of sinners. We are to pray for the salvation of all peoples, for that is the ministry and the mission for which Christ has called us. Now, it is within that context of order within the church, of Paul giving apostolic admonition to how the church is to function corporately, that we have this particular admonition. Now, first of all, friends, let me remind you in verse 8, I desire. Friends, this is coming from the Apostle Paul. Now, friends, many times in our own culture, we have this sense of, you know, this is Paul as a misogynist. Right here in chapter 2, we see Paul as a sexist. Paul who thinks women are inferior. And so it's out of that cultural bias that he gives this admonition. And many people will write this off and they'll say, well, Paul was just a product of his culture. You know, the Roman culture didn't think very highly of women. They didn't have a prominent place. And so Paul has just adopted that cultural view. And so that's why he gives these admonitions. He gives these instructions. Paul is working with a cultural bias. And they'll say that for that reason, we just need to brush this off and say Paul was a product of his time, but we know better now. But friends, remember, This is not simply Paul speaking. Paul is speaking as an apostle. I desire, that means, friends, when Paul gives this admonition, he is speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ. Friends, to be an apostle means to be a sent one. It means to be one who has been commissioned by one in authority to speak in the name of the one who sends him. Friends, to be an apostle is to be the very mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if we reject Paul, friends, we are rejecting the one who sent Paul, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are rejecting the one who sent his only Son, namely God the Father. So friends, this is an apostolic admonition. This is the very lively Word of God. It comes to us with the very same authority that all the other sacred scripture brings to bear upon our lives. So friends, even though Paul is saying, this is what I want, this is what I desire, this is what I command, notice that it is behind behind the authority of Paul is the authority of Jesus, the Lord and Master of the church. And in verse 8, he desires, he looks to the men, and Paul says, I desire the men should pray. Men, we are called to be examples to the church of God. We are called to lead. 
We are called to be those who, in reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, model godliness in our homes, in our work, and in the church. And one way this is demonstrated is in our praying. How we pray for the people of God. How we pray privately, yes, in our own homes, on our own beds, in our own closets, but how we pray even corporately. Friends, when we pray for one another, this is the means that God has appointed for the needs of His church to be known, for the desires of God's people to be brought forth. Friends, God has ordained that it is through prayer that sinners would be converted. That the church would be built up, that the provision of God for his people would come forth. Friends, prayer is not simply a a B-tier component of the Christian life, but it is front and center. And as men, we are called to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be men of prayer. Now, friends, again, uh, this is a discipline that we are growing in. We're asking the Lord to help us to commune with him, to Asking the Lord to lead us by His Spirit to know what to pray and how to pray in accordance with His will. But notice that Paul says that this external behavior, this activity of prayer, is to be coupled with a right attitude. It is prayer without quarreling and without anger. Friends, Paul identifies two perennial sins within the heart, particularly of men. Our wrath, our anger, our frustration. Because, friends, God has given authority to husbands and to fathers. And sometimes, friends, it's easy to throw our weight around, to insist on our own way, to forge our own path and, and, and make sure everybody else falls behind us. But Paul says this discipline of prayer, which the men are to be particularly engaged in, is to be one with gentleness, with reverence, with humility. Lifting holy hands, the posture of prayer. So, friends, remember that when God looks at our behavior, when God evaluates our works, He not only looks at the matter, but he looks at the motivation. Friends, one of the greatest dangers for the church is that we fall into externalism. You know what externalism is. It's where everything is measured by the external. Just going through the motions. Just doing the right religious activities. Friends, this is what the Lord Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. Friends, the Pharisees were outwardly the most religious people on planet earth. As one Pharisee said, he would give tithes of everything that he had, including the spices and herbs that grew in his little garden. If the Pharisee saw a dime on the street, he would go home and he would make ten pennies and he would put one penny in the temple collection box. The Pharisee would fast multiple times a week. The Pharisee dedicated himself to studying the scriptures. The Pharisee was even zealous for converts. 
Jesus says, you go across land and sea to make one proselyte. When you do, you make him twice a son of hell as you are. Friends, the Pharisees did many things for which Jesus even commended them. They were tithers. They were prayers. They studied the scriptures. They were evangelists. But what was lacking in the heart of the Pharisee? Love. They did not love the Lord their God. They did not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had all the activity, but it was all external. It was not motivated by faith. It was not motivated by law. It didn't come forth as the fruit of the new birth. Friends, the worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God must come from the heart. Friends, the gospel declares that our sin problem is not just bad behavior. It's not just bad deeds. It's a bad heart. It's a bad intentions. It's bad motivations. It's evil thoughts. And friends, sometimes we can deceive ourselves because we're so engaged in good outward things. And yet we forget unless or until we've been born again. This worship is not pleasing and acceptable to God. It's what we might call a bad, good work. And so Paul is saying, men, be on guard. You're called to pray. But this prayer is to come from a heart that trusts in Christ, loves the people of God, and is seeking to serve him. So friends, let that be an admonition to us. That we come before the Lord and say, Lord, change my heart. Please come and renovate my affections. Renew within me, as David said. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, we are praying for continual renovation. Well, he turns now in verse 9 to the women. He says, likewise, women, you are to adorn yourselves in respectable apparel. So he calls upon the women to adorn themselves. This is a calling to to dress. And Paul goes on to say it's not just a dress of external. It's to be one of modesty and self-control. Remember, that's something going on inside. The attitude of modesty, the temperament of self-control. And then Paul gives a couple of examples in his culture in Ephesus of what that does not look like, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire. But, verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. He says, I want the men to pray with holy hearts, with hearts full of love for God and for the people of God. And it is my desire that the women should endeavor to adorn themselves with good works. To adorn themselves with a modest spirit, with self-control. And he begins to list those things. Now, friends, braided hair in itself is not evil. Wearing gold jewelry is not evil. Wearing pearls is not evil. Paul is saying, dear ladies, remember the beauty that you have in Christ. Remember the beauty you have as a son and daughter of the king. And that 
is to be your focus. Cosmetics in and of themselves are not bad, but we should be most concerned with the inner person. And so, friends, he says it is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Oh, friends, the Bible has a lot to say about good works. Friends, you are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith which remains alone. Friends, your standing before a holy God is reckoned to you by the work of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who kept the law for you. It is Jesus who died the death you deserve to die. It was Jesus who was raised from the dead for your justification. Friends, you have no inherent righteousness except that which is given to you by Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. His good works are the basis by which a holy God looks at you as a sinner united to his son by faith and says, I reckon you to be righteous. It is an imputed righteousness. But if you are united to Christ, friends, that living, vital union by faith in the Spirit of God will always in very evidence itself in good works. You are not justified by your works, but you have been justified by God unto good works. As Ephesians says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Now, friends, if you put good works on the other side of the equation and you think that it is you and Jesus working together in order to make yourself acceptable to God, you will never arrive at your destination. You will be hopelessly lost. You will be deflating the Savior. You will be inflating yourself. But if you say that good works, a life of obedience to Christ, a holy service unto Him is in no way necessary, friends. Scripture rebukes you. For James says, faith without works is dead. The works don't justify you. Christ justifies you. But just as Christ is the true vine and we are the branch, if we are truly in Him, there will come the fruit of obedience, of loving faithfulness unto Christ. Now, friends, these good works, they're a mixed bag. Friends, when you were born again, God gave you a new heart. He took away that heart of stone. He gave you a heart of flesh. You have new loves in your heart as a Christian that you didn't have before. And it is out of this new affection. It is out of this recreated mind that you are now endeavoring to love Christ, to serve Him and to honor Him. As Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good purpose. Your works don't justify you, friend. But if they're not there, that means the faith isn't there. And if the faith is not there, you are still dead in trespasses and sins. 
You are not united to Christ. Because, friends, what comes from our justification is good works. Again, friends, our works are so meager because what is the standard that God calls us to? God commands of us that we love him perfectly, wholly, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And friend, we have not done that for one millisecond of our lives. Not one millisecond. So friends, even when we externally are doing things that God commands, we pray. We are loving and serving our neighbors. We're engaged in all this activity, friends. There's still a mixture of the flesh. There's still a mixture of this carnal, sinful attitudes and ambitions and inclinations within us, friends. And so that could work. Is acceptable to God because it comes through the mediation of Christ. Who removes all that offends and presents it to the Father as something holy and acceptable to Him. But see how Paul is calling upon particularly the women to adorn themselves with good works which is proper for those who profess godliness. Well, in verse 11, now Paul turns to the role of women when it comes to the teaching ministry of the church. Verse 11, notice that Paul commands the women to learn. Let a woman learn. Friends, Paul is following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who invited many women to study at his rabbinical school, which was not something that the rabbis normally did. But Jesus welcomed women to come and to study with him, to come and follow him. Think of Mary and Martha. Think of Mary sitting there at the teacher's feet while all of the business of the house is going on and Mary is drinking in the word of God as the living word is preaching to her. She has front row access to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this good portion should not be taken away from her. Friends, men and women are to come to the Lord Jesus. Men and women are called to follow him. Paul's not a sexist. Paul's not a misogynist. He's saying men and women are welcome both at the Savior's feet. But this learning, particularly for the women within the corporate setting, the corporate gathering of the church, Paul says in verse 11 that women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, friends, this is, this is where for many, this is a hard saying. What Paul means is that a believing woman should see the authority that God has placed within his church. That just as there is authority God has given to the government, just as there is authority that God has given to fathers and husbands in the home, so too there is authority that God has given and displayed in his church. And that we are to see this as something good, as something that God has given for our blessing for our benefit. So in verse 11, he calls upon the women to see 
the God-given order within his church and to recognize this. The, the idea of submissiveness, friends, uh, it means to see that authority as ultimately coming from Christ. Uh, it's not meaning to be a, a doormat or a slave, but insofar as that good authority over me is giving to me godly words and counsel, I am to hear them as the very truth of God. So friends, we know that there is an order in structure within the church of God. And this is seen in verse 12, where we see that Paul unambiguously, very clearly, limits the office of the pastor or elder to men. And Paul forbids that a woman should hold this office within the church. Notice verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now what, she, what Paul is saying is he's distinguishing between two activities, that of teaching and that of exercising authority. And those are the two main roles of the elder or the overseer, to teach from the word of God, to expound the truth of God, and to rule in the church, to have that authority to govern in the church of God. And notice that it's qualified. Paul says, over a man. Now this would mean, friends, that it is in accord with the counsel of God that a woman should teach in a Sunday school class, could teach for children, that this is all well and good. In fact, friends, we are reminded of Timothy's own example. We have a or we have had a, uh, a, a class of Timothy, Eunice, and Lois, right? Timothy's own conversion came by the witness of his mother and his grandmother. They continued to pour the Word of God into Timothy, and God, by His grace, brought it home savingly to Timothy. But it was through the witness, through the ministry, through the prayers and teaching of his mother and grandmother. But Paul is saying, within the church, there is to be a distinction. There is to be a recognition of male headship. And notice that Paul says this, within, sets this within the context of creation. Now, this clues us in that this is not just a cultural thing. Because, friends, somebody might look at this and go, well, Paul is just addressing a problem in Ephesus. Paul's just addressing uh, some particular believers who were women in the church of Ephesus that were not receiving and, and weren't coming under the authority of Timothy. And so Paul's really just talking about a cultural situation. This isn't a principle down through the ages. But Paul makes sure to communicate that it is a principle. It is a precept to be carried down through the ages by linking it with Creation. Verse 13, Paul reminds us that Adam was formed first. Friends, leadership in the church is rooted in creation order. So just as Adam was created first, and it was to Adam that God made a covenant, it was with Adam that God said, this is my commandment. This is my law. You, O oh Adam, are to love me and obey me and worship me. It was to Adam 
That responsibility was given for the human race and not to Eve. We see that that same creative order and authority is to be on display in the church. Adam was formed first, then Eve, who was formed of Adam. Notice Paul calls her Eve. Now, Eve was the name that Adam gave her. Why did Paul name, I'm sorry, why did Adam name his wife Eve? Because she was the mother of all living. And so there's, there was order, as there was authority within the first family between Adam and Eve. So too we see that this is the grounds for order and authority within the church. At verse 14, Paul goes on to say, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now, what Paul means is that it was to Eve that the serpent came. It was to Eve that the serpent first presented the temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was when Eve was deceived by the serpent that she, along with the serpent, led Adam into transgression. And so we see that Adam was not deceived. He willfully, deliberately broke the command of God. He followed the bad advice of his wife that he knew was bad. And he died for his sin, but she also became a transgressor. So we see that, friends, part of Eve's rebellion is she did not believe the word of God, nor did she recognize the authority which her God had given to her husband. And then in verse 15, we have a, a strange text. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, friends, Paul does not mean that there are two ways to enter eternal life. One is by faith in Jesus Christ, and the second is by having children. Uh, Paul does not mean that, but Paul is referring back to the same Genesis 3 narrative. Remember, friends, when Adam fell, when Eve fell, God made a promise. What we call it the Proto-Evangel in Genesis chapter 3. As God is in the midst of cursing, first the serpent, and then the woman, and the man, and all creation, God puts in a promise. When he curses the serpent, he says, Cursed are you above all livestock. On your belly, O serpent, you shall go all the days of your life, and you shall eat the dust. And God said, I will put enmity, conflict between you, O serpent, and your offspring, and between the woman and her offspring. And he, mentioning a very particular son of the woman, will crush your head, O serpent, and yet you will bite his heel. This is the first gospel promise. This is the first announcement of God, of Christ the Redeemer. He is the promised Son. And it is the privilege of Eve that this Son of woman would be born of woman. This is her high privilege. 
And Eve recognizes that. When she has her first son, Cain, she rejoices. God has given me a man. And when Seth was born, she rejoiced before the Lord again. Because she said, God has given me another son. Because Cain has killed Abel. See, friends, Eve understood that her redemption was wrapped up in this promised son. This son of God's promise. Who was to come. And Eve believed the promise of God. We might consider Eve the very first saint. The very first of God's redeemed. For she heard this gospel. And she believed her God would keep his word. And would keep his promise. So friends, through childbearing, the son of promise came. And remember, as we look through the Old Testament, we see this son of promise revealed progressively. He will be the son of Abraham, greater than Isaac. He will be the son of David, David's greater son, who is also David's Lord and God. And so friends, all throughout the Old Testament, we see more and more of the portrait of this Promised son until John the Baptist comes and announces, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Son of Promise, is here. Paul is saying, God has given an order in creation. He has given authority to husbands. He has given authority to those men whom he has called over his church as overseers, as pastors, and elders. And this is to reflect the promise of God of a Savior. That you'll be saved saved through childbearing if they continue, if they persist in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, friends, these are uh, the fruits of living faith. These are the fruits of the new birth. Continue in trust in the Lord our God. Friends, again... The faith which is the gift of God is a persevering faith. The faith which God implants within the soul of a man, that faith is an enduring faith. It's not a fickle faith. It is a faith which holds fast to Christ, the object of our hope. And it is evidenced in love for God and for others. It is in holy living and all this with self-control. Friends, this is the the proof that one is in Christ, that one has been born again. And so Paul gives this admonition in order to encourage God's people, to encourage the church, that this order in worship uh, is given as a witness. Friends, Calvin said that uh, it is the job of the church to make visible the invisible kingdom of God. That is, friends, when you and I gather together on Sunday mornings, we are gathering to give God glory and to bear witness to that glory to a watching world, friends. When we assemble today, when we assemble this morning, what we are saying is we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. We are testifying to our hope, to our joy and our life in him. And this corporate worship is a part of the witness of the church. It's not to the exclusion of personal evangelism. Personal evangelism is still part and parcel of it. 
But make no mistake, friends, when we gather together for worship, it is part of the witness. And so Paul is saying, within the church, God is bearing witness to His Word, to the truth, and to the gospel of His grace. So friends, in closing, uh, corporate worship is a big deal. Sometimes we can, can get into the sense of, well, we, can, we just sort of add whatever ingredients to the corporate worship of the church that we like. We like skits, let's have a skit. Let's, you know, have a movie clip. Let's do this, let's do that. And before long, friends, we've made worship about us, our own appetites, our own desires, our own ambitions. And it's become about satisfying those desires rather than giving God the glory that is due His name. And Paul is saying, the temptation of God's people is always to take the focus off of God and to put it back on self. And even within the structure of church and authority, with designating the office of the elder for men alone, we see that God is bearing witness to this same truth. So friends, do we accept this? As the word of God, do we rejoice uh, in what the Lord is doing in this design? Uh, Because as we've seen, this is for his glory and our good. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us uh, to see the order and structure which you have given to your church. Lord, we pray that we would uh, rejoice in this good gift. Father, we pray that you would help us to continue to persevere and hope love and holiness. Father, thank you that you have promised that you will preserve your people until you bring us safely and savingly home. Bless us now, we pray, as we come to the Lord's table, as we celebrate the supper. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would even now begin to tune our affections, direct our minds' attention, and lead us, O Lord, to worship you. For this, Father, we ask in Christ's name.